This conference will now be recorded. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again as we get started here in Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs 19, we're looking at verses 20 and 21 and 22. Verses 20, 21, and 22. That's our plan anyway. We make plans, and sometimes our plans uh, don't happen, like last week. We planned to teach for uh, 60 minutes, and we only taught for 30 minutes. And then uh, the power failure hit, and I was kicked out, and you all continued on. And uh, we learned some things, though. We learned that that uh, the video keeps recording, even if uh, the presenter is gone. So, um by the time my power came back up and I got my internet back up and I got reconnected again and I was able to rejoin the meeting, it was the strangest thing because I rejoined the meeting not as a um, as a presenter but as a, an attendee. And so as a as an attendee, I was I uh, had the same limitations you guys had. I didn't have my camera, I didn't have other things. Couldn't uh all I could do was end the show. So that's what we uh what we ended up doing calling class over and and we were able to salvage about 30 minutes worth and uh, so that's on the website and you can watch the youtube or you can you can uh, listen to the mp3 i think we'll repeat a lot of that this morning just to get us back in the right in the right context and uh, proceed from there so before we get started though remember god is spirit he must be worshiped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the word of god let's take a moment of silent prayer and ask our father's blessing upon our time of study shall we pray Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, thankful for the blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, praying for wisdom and guidance as uh, the state lockdown comes to a close tomorrow, and uh, we will be permitted to return to our building under distancing requirements and things like that. So, Father, we need wisdom. I thank you that we've got different committees at work to uh, to scrub the building, to clean it thoroughly, and uh, different people volunteering for that, and we've got other uh, workers uh, preparing to mount the new camera and get our uh, broadcasting capacity up to running. So, Father, uh, we want to be able to do live streaming. We want to be able to do like we're doing now uh, from the church building. So uh, give us wisdom in how to install <clears throat> install the right equipment and uh, train the people that are going to be using it so that uh, when we do return to the building, Folks that uh, that aren't able to join us there will still be able to learn and uh, fellowship and participate and do all the things uh, like we're doing now. So um, put us on your schedule, Father, so that we don't move too early or too slow. And uh, just thank you for being faithful. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. My Bible up here so we can read it and get uh, up to date with where we are. Not uh, not Job chapter 9, but Proverbs chapter 19. Listen to, verse 20 says, Listen to counsel and accept discipline, that you may be wise the rest of your days. And that's a reminder that we need from time to time. It's uh, really, it's child training, it's child instruction. And uh, this verse would fit very well in the first nine chapters. But here it is in chapter 19. And it's a periodic reminder that we all get from time to time, and we all need from time to time. 
that uh, we're never too old to uh, listen to counsel or listen to discipline. And uh, God will always give us his counsel and, and his discipline. And so we have to uh, we have to accept it to be wise. The rest of your days is not just uh, for the rest of your days in this life, but uh, it's your own personal eschatology. It's to the last and beyond, because uh, the last of these days in mortality uh, give way to the first of our days in immortality as we cross over from this life to the next. And so we've got uh, an idiomatic expression there that uh, centers on not just this life. You know, we have the the fairy tale endings to our stories about, you know, they lived happily ever after to the end of their days and so forth. Well, the ever after, for those who have eternal life, the ever after is ever and ever, forever and ever. Amen. And it's beyond the uh, the span of this life. So that's uh, the joy that we have. All right. We move from there then to uh, to verse 21. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And that's what we started to teach last week before uh, God chose to illustrate this verse through uh, over with the overruling will of God and circumstances beyond our control that we might have all kinds of plans. But uh, when a lightning bolt strikes from nowhere or, or something else happens, uh, our plans are not realized. And so this happens as well. We advance our slideshow to uh, what we're looking at this morning. We've covered a lot in this chapter already. I think we are here. Wisdom lessons that would fit naturally in the parental wisdom portion of the book are worthwhile reminders. And we need those reminders from time to time. And so we get them here. No human being ever outgrows this need for counsel and discipline. We talked about that. And the consequences reach the end of this life and are, in fact, eternal. And then secondly here. Human beings have multiple plans with layered thoughts and intentions. Human beings have multiple plans with layered thoughts and intentions. But it's God's eternal purpose is the plan that he actualizes. <coughs> and really, this uh, this doctrine or this principle, as it's applied, uh, is, is a lot deeper than we give it credit for. And let me uh, move this up higher. This concept of uh, plans and intentions, uh, possibilities, contingencies, uh, you know, and, and we do this in the human realm to a limited degree. God does this uh, to an infinite degree. And once we start to uh, consider such things and think these things through, uh, we realize that the plan of God is is such a multi, uh, multitudinous um, infinite uh, thing that it really boggles the mind to to wrap your mind around it, but it's it's useful, and we should do this. We should broaden our thinking beyond just uh, the, the the limited finite approach that uh, that we would typically limit ourselves to. No, uh, the the plan of God is bigger than that, and when we understand plans and layered intentions, we understand that that uh, certain plans can be contingent based upon other things happening first or based upon two or three or four or, in God's case, an infinite number of things that happen first. And some things can never happen until other things happen first. And so these are the these are the things that we uh, that we recognize in the plan of God. And this is where um, I, I believe that the omnipotence of God and that the omniscience of God is much larger than we usually give him credit for. 
And this is where some schools of theology are fatally flawed. In fact, Calvinism denies all of this um, in, in the sense that it limits God's plan to what he decrees. And if he doesn't decree it, then it, it, uh, then he doesn't know it. And uh, that is such a harmful limitation to omniscience. It really cuts down what God knows and denies that he can know things that are, that are uh, beyond the realm of possibility. And the scripture makes very clear that God knows everything, including the things that are not possible or the things that will never happen. And some of those are, are quite critical in, uh, in understanding uh, how God put his plan together and designed the perfect outcome for the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and so some of that will come up as we look at these verses. And uh, if, if um, some of it does not, then maybe we'll take a little bit of extra time to, uh, to touch upon those things. Because the idea of what is actualized, as it says on the screen, <clears throat> God's eternal purpose is what he actualizes. Until it is actualized, it's just a potential. And so we have uh, different plans. And until uh, the plan is either successful or a failure, uh, it's either actualized or it's not. And uh, this is uh, this is what we deal with when we talk about the plan of God. So when we talk about human plans, uh, we can look at these verses. Obviously, we just saw Proverbs 19:21 already that we read. Uh, we'll back up to Proverbs 16. In verse one, it says the plans of uh, the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And even the time span from thinking to saying, sometimes we lose it there. You know, we uh, we intend to say something, but it comes out wrong. And uh, and, and that can be just, uh, you know, a, a couple of seconds or, or a split second uh, in between thinking and, and speaking. Where where did that come from? How did that come out of the mouth when uh, what I intended to say was something different? So uh, that's uh, that's a, it's a kind of funny sometimes, uh, sometimes not so funny, uh, depending on who gets offended when. Uh, when the wrong thing gets said, but uh, this this only goes to illustrate that the realm of humanity has this uh, uncontrollable, unpredictable, uh, out of our control uh, uh, situation and uh, causes us to be very dependent upon God and his grace and his plans, uh, because God never says the wrong thing, uh, you know, contrary to what he intended to say. God never has a slip of the tongue. He never has a, a senior moment where uh, he gets halfway through his sentence and then he forgets where he was going with it. And then he ends up looking dazed and confused like Joe Biden on a camera. OK, God never does that. We do that. We're the human beings that are finite and uh, and fallible. Verse nine of the same chapter. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so this, too, I think, is a great privilege that we have, that we are rational creatures and he expects us to think. And he holds us accountable for how we think and how we train our minds and how we shape our thinking by the word of God. But even with that in place, uh, we still have finite understanding. And so, you know, the best example, I think, on this is David. King David wanted to build the temple. And that was his mind. That was his plan. He was shaped by the word of God. And he was not rebuked for a bad desire or the wrong idea. He just had a, a finite understanding. And when God made it very clear that it was God's plan for David to be the man of war and Solomon, his son, to be the man of peace. And he wanted uh, each each 
king and his generation to portray an aspect of the life of Christ. And it was uh, it was designed in, in the plan of God for the king of peace to construct the temple, not the not the man of war. And so uh, once David received that that further information, he was fine with that. He relaxed. He worshiped. He thanked God. Uh, and so that's a good illustration of of Proverbs 16, 9, where the man of uh, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps that our mind is going to be limited based upon the finite knowledge and uh, full knowledge and wisdom and understanding and, and everything else. We have to be reliant upon, reliant upon God to direct our steps. Of course, Colonel Thiem's very famous verse of, of uh, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this one's useful as well because not only does it show the thoughts, but it also goes behind the thoughts to the actual intentions. And so when you stop to consider that and you realize that there's uh, there's more to the thought process, that there's actually an attitudinal stage and in a, a mental attitude that helps to shape those thoughts. And if the mental attitude is terrible, then uh, the thoughts that get uh, generated from that mental attitude or get shaped in the uh, in the uh, the con- in the outworking of that mental attitude, they're going to be terrible thoughts uh, that come from terrible intentions, that come from the terrible attitude. And so uh, it's the attitude that we want to be able to shape because we're accountable for all of it. Able to judge means that we're accountable, and the standard is the Word of God. And when the standard of the Word of God is applied to not just our actions, not just our our words, not just our thinking in the formulated thoughts, but even the the attitude behind the thinking related to the intentions, that really, um, boy, that really nails it down and and uh, places the accountability into a realm that only God Himself can can oversee. So. On the human level, it's one thing, but on God's level, it's something entirely different. And praise God for that. It's God's eternal purpose that stands. It's God's eternal purpose that is actualized. And uh, there's never uh, uh, a competing will that overrules. There's never circumstances beyond his control. There's never an unexpected circumstance that popped up where, you know, uh, a lightning bolt strikes and, and things are out of your control and, and that never happens to God. He never says, oh, I didn't I didn't expect that. I didn't anticipate that. Uh, who would have thought that could have happened, right? Well, God's in charge of thunderbolts. God's in charge of lightning. God's in charge of everything. And nothing happens apart from his foreknowledge to know that it was going to happen. And and this is this is so marvelous because when you're talking about billions of humans and billions of, of angels, or however many there are, myriads upon myriads, um, that's that's a you're talking all those volitional beings making thousands of volitional decisions and and uh, over the course of you know days months years decades millennia you know in the case of the angels fallen angels they've been making terrible decisions for thousands and thousands of years and uh, so you're talking millions of decisions by billions of angels and God knows every single one, and he knows every what if, and he knows the outcome of, of every choice. And uh, and he's maintaining his sovereignty through all of that. And it's a it's a marvelous thing to, to behold. 
Now let's look at some of these. Let's look at, of course, uh, verse B of Proverbs 19.21. That's what starts this all off. Back to what we opened with, the B part, the counsel of the Lord will stand. It'll never fall. It'll never end. There is, uh, and the counsel, of course, is the like-mindedness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, I do teach the, the Eternal Life Conference from uh, prior to the Alpha moment when uh, in the timeless eternity past, uh, the, the Father proposed the plan, the Son and the Holy Spirit agreed to it, and uh, they've been putting it into effect ever since. And that's the counsel of the Lord will stand. And by the way, we were not invited to uh, to contribute. He didn't ask us for our input or our suggestions, uh, not that we were around in eternity past to be able to do that. And this is a part of what he rebukes when he rebukes Job for his arrogance or when he rebukes any human being for thinking that we know better than God. Where were you? And uh, when uh, the, uh, the plan of God was put into motion, and since we weren't around back then, we clearly don't have the capacity to advise God in uh, the, best, the best course of action moving forward. Job 23.13 is pretty blunt. He is unique and who can turn him. He is unique. There is no other God. He is the one and the only, uh, the only I am. Nobody else can make the I am statement that, that I am makes, that God makes. Um, and uh, on that basis, as the only uncreated, uncontingent, he is the necessary being of the universe. And uh, this is what we talk about. And Norm Geisler really I think does a marvelous job in his uh, systematic theology when he talks about the necessity of God and uh, how the I am eternal God is the only non-contingent being that uh, every other being beyond God is contingent. Uh, contingent meaning that uh, it's possible for us to not exist. And, uh, you know, prior to uh, the time that we were born, we didn't exist. And uh, so clearly it's possible for us to not exist. And uh, but God's the only being that is uh, absolutely uh, existent and uh, necessary. So that's uh, part of what's communicated here by Job. He is unique and who can turn him and what his soul desires that he does, what his soul desires that he does. And I think we need to take a moment to to identify this because it's not arbitrary and it's not. The uh, ironclad absolute sovereignty that is sometimes taught by Calvinists and others, uh, because it's uh, some people will def- will teach this verse and other verses. They will teach this like it is an arbitrary. Who are you, O pot, to question what God is doing? And uh, you're a creature. God's the creator. And who are you to question if he does it? it he does it because He wants to because he's sovereign, because he can. And they will try to defend this. They teach a sovereignty that is disconnected from every other attribute of God. And I I believe that's flawed. I don't think you can separate uh, sovereignty from every other attribute. You can't separate love from every other attribute. You can't separate righteousness from every other attribute. And when you study the nature of God, you have to look at the totality of God for who he is and what he is. And you have to accept in verses like this, for example, what his soul desires. He does. He doesn't do anything contrary to what his soul desires, but what his soul desires, he does. 
And that's that's a deep study, because then you have to search the scriptures and say, well, what does his soul desire? And uh, his soul desires to glorify his son. All right, well, let's let's build on that. And and other things that his soul desires, his soul desires volitional creatures to be accountable for the choices we make. And so we reap what we sow and we make decisions. We make we make choices and we face consequences. And sometimes our choices are contrary to God's choices. We call that sin. Well, why does he permit that? Does he want us to sin? No, he wants us to be volitional. He wants us to be accountable because he wants our love for his son to be like his love for his son. Not forced, not coerced. God loves the cheerful giver. And so anything that's a coercion, anything that's forced, anything that's not genuine, his soul does not desire that. And so some of these some of these principles really they take you into deeper realms of God's essence and deeper realms of God's plan than uh, than is frequently frequently dealt with. Anyway, so just bookmark this verse, pay attention to it, and uh, come back to it from time to time. Give it some thought, and I think you'll uh, you'll see. But clearly, uh, no one can turn him. No no one can overrule when uh, when God has a desire. He will. Uh, achieve what he desires to achieve. Proverbs, uh, Psalm 2, where the lightning struck last week. Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? This is actually a prophetic preview of the coming millennium when uh, it doesn't take long. We know the millennium starts with all saved people, but uh, as as more get born and don't get saved and as more believers turn negative, uh, these believers are still sinners. And uh, can still go apostate. It doesn't take long. How long did it take the Exodus generation to start grumbling in the wilderness? So how long is it going to take the tribulational survivors to start grumbling in the millennium? It's not going to take long. And even with perfect government, perfect environment, there are still imperfect people, sinners, uh, that will uh, that will start to grumble against uh, Jesus Christ on the throne. And so nations in an uproar and peoples devising a vain thing. And the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. And their objective is to uh, to get their own freedom from the yoke of, uh, of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. But they're taking counsel against Yahweh and against his Mashiach, against his Christ, his Messiah. And so it's a rebellion against Yahweh and Jesus, that's God the Father and Jesus Christ saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And uh, this is uh, this is very clear uh, through all of these passages and all these verses that Psalm 2 has not happened yet. Psalm 2 is a future context in millennium when Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem and the Gentile nations are chafing at his, at his sovereignty. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. They may grumble, they may not like it, but God says, this is my choice. He is my beloved son. This is my choice. He is my king, and I put him there. When you are resisting authority, you are resisting the will of God. Because the authority that exists is the authority that he has put in place. So the millennium becomes the, the, the ultimate Romans 13 application. And uh, the, the Gentile nations are going to have to submit 
whether they want to or not. And if they create some schemes to rebel, some schemes to try to escape that, ultimately they're going to succeed in demanding Satan's release. And uh, they want Satan released from the abyss so that he can lead them in their rebellion against the rule of Jesus Christ. And that's how the millennium closes with the Gog Magog rebellion in uh, in tragic failure. Verse uh, 7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so the decree, the will of God has uh, called for Jesus Christ to have center stage, to have centrality in uh, in the outworking of his plan. All right. Looks like we're having connection problems in some cases. I hope that's limited. Try to log off and log back in. Is anybody else having connection issues? I think if, I did, uh, but I'm back in. All right. Well, good news. We'll just keep going and trust, uh, trust in God's faithfulness. So this is Psalm 2. I want to get past Psalm 2 today. That's where we got stuck last week. Um, but understanding God will accomplish his plan in the millennium and beyond, because on the other side of the millennium is the new heavens and new earth. And that's what we're looking forward to. The thousand generations when God's purpose is actualized. There won't be the rebellion on the part of the kings and on the part of the nations and and all the rest. There's no more sin, no more death once we get to the, the fullness of time. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. And I think sometimes, remember, see who sits in the heavens laughs. And uh, notice he doesn't coerce the volition. He would love to see them express positive volition. And when he nullifies their counsel, this is God and his sovereignty directing events, directing circumstances, whereby without changing their volition, he uh, he frustrates what they're doing because he still wants to accomplish what he's doing in uh, in these things. All right. And so maybe on a personal basis, the example of, of Jonah is the best way to describe the directive will of God, the permissive will of God, the overruling will of God. But when uh, he tells Job, he tells uh, Jonah to go to Nineveh and uh, Jonah gets on the boat to go to Tarshish, um, God doesn't coerce volition. He might send a storm. He might send a whale. He might send whatever. And uh, and so Jonah ends up swallowed. And and uh, on the third day, he gets spit up on the beach. And and uh, still, he's got all the volition that he's always had. But the command comes again, arise and go to Nineveh. And so, you know, the uh, whatever it takes to for humanity to uh, finally respond to discipline, to respond to teaching, to respond to uh, the circumstances around us. If nothing else, um, we reach a point where we're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And we're uh, we realize that uh, the divine discipline up till now has been increasing. And the, the most current round of divine discipline is about. Uh, the most unpleasant that I want to experience. And so I decide I, I don't want to know what the next step is. Uh, the next step is probably the sin unto death or, or something horrible. So let's uh, let's go ahead and repent now. Uh, let's submit to the will of God. Let's change my thinking 
so that uh, I can volitionally be on board with what it is that God is telling me to do. And that's uh, that's what God does. And so in nullifying the counsel of the nations, frustrating the plans of the peoples, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. So this is uh, this is the glory of who God is. And from generation to generation, God sees it. He shepherds it. He uh, he works in each generation. And uh, and the angels are also watching from generation to generation because uh, they're already locked into their eternality uh, as as uh, angelic beings. And so they can uh, they can watch us. They can watch our kids. They can watch our grandkids long after we're uh, we're gone and departed. The, uh, this is how it works. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's not the United States of America, by the way. That is Israel in context. Um, we can be uh, a, a client nation. We can be uh, blessed as we bless Israel. We can be blessed as we support the uh, teaching of the Bible and the, and the free preaching of the gospel. There are principles for a Gentile nation to reap temporal life blessings uh, coming from the God of Israel, but uh, he will never become the God of the United States of America because he is the God of Israel. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, no Gentile nation can uh, can lay claim to, uh, to uh, Yahweh as our God. And uh, hopefully we understand that. We don't get confused in our super patriotism between uh, temporal life and spiritual life. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance, those are the Jewish people, in uh, contrast to the Gentiles. All right, Isaiah 14. Now, typically, when we go to Isaiah 14, um, the first verse we go to is Isaiah 14, 12. <laughs> Because we're going to teach angelic conflict. We're going to teach the fall of Satan. And uh, we, we turn there so many times. It's like the only verses in Isaiah 14 are uh, Isaiah are verses 12 and following. Which uh, doesn't make any sense. Because how do you have verse 12 without 11 verses in front of it? But anyway, uh, just know the context for what this is. And uh, Satan is 0 for 5 in what he declares. <laughs> um how you have fallen from heaven, Halel ben Shachar. That's the Hebrew name for Satan, Halel ben Shachar. The Latin Vulgate rendered it Lucifer, and uh, that's we've been stuck with the proper name Lucifer ever since. Uh, the I guess I, we can blame Jerome for that in the uh, Latin Vulgate. Star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so we've taught this before. We'll teach it again, I'm sure, many times. Uh, but these are the five I wills. They precede the fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, I, it's it's Curious to me, the pastors who want to debate this or, or Bible scholars who struggle in their angelology, uh, I think they are so committed to other theological positions that they leave themselves trapped and unable to handle uh, angelic information like this. But uh, to me, it's, it's glaring, it's obvious that when the serpent shows up in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, he's already a fallen creature, he's already a tempter, he's already a, a thing of wickedness. 
And, uh, and so these I wills and the fall of Satan has to precede the fall of Adam and Eve. And, uh, and I think the best reconciliation for that even precedes the creation of Adam and Eve, even precedes the creation of the Adamic earth. But that's, uh, that's a lesson for a different day. So Satan has all these I wills, five of them. Nevertheless, God tells him, you will. And uh, God responds to uh, the I wills with you will. You will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. And those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you. So you will and they will, as God is rebuking Satan in his fall. So uh, it's, it's a good contrast, and uh, it's worth spending some time to look through. I'm going to get down here to verses 24, 26, and 27. All right. The follow-up to the satanic passage now is uh, this section here. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand. Okay? This is another difference between God and man. Sometimes we uh, have plans, we have intentions, we uh, we put our plan into action, and we accomplish well, not exactly what we thought we were going to accomplish, because even though we have our volition and even though we take action on our volition and we do what we intended to do, we're still finite. And sometimes when we're done, we look back at what we did and we say, hmm, that's not the way I planned it. <laughs> How did that happen? How is it? I intended such and such. And here's what happened. And uh, I thought I was working my plan. and I thought I was accomplishing it. And it turned out um, poorly, and it turned out uh, inferior. And this is uh, that's 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 um, reflective of, of my capacity as a finite being. This is true for all angels. This is true for all humans. Uh, this is why, even though God gives Satan free reign with unrestrained permissive will, the tribulation will not turn out the way Satan intends. That Satan's plan is going to be thwarted all kinds of ways. That his great world hero, this man of peace, is going to get attacked. Uh, read Daniel 11 sometime, and you're going to see that the king of the north and the king of the south, they attack the uh, the coming prince. They attack Satan's great hero. And then another army is coming from the east when rumors from the north and the east disturb him, and he goes forth with great wrath. And so... Um, it's, it's a curious thing when you ever study the depths of the of the tribulation when Satan has has unrestrained power and he's got uh, an anti-trinity at work and and there's a uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan uh, and then the plan is put into motion and it, it falls apart even before Jesus returns even before Armageddon and the victory that Jesus has over. Uh, over Antichrist and in the armies there. Anyway, so Isaiah 14, 24. Surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. Just as I have planned, so it will stand. To break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulder. What God intends to accomplish, he accomplishes. Verse 26. This is the plan devised against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? 
And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? <laughs> you know, when God lifts his hand, who can turn it back? There's no human being that's going to grab hold of it and keep it. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. All right. The imagery there is pretty vivid. And uh, when God stretches out his hand, that's why when he grabs the knife, when Abraham grabs the knife and he's going to kill Isaac and God stops him, God turns his hand back, says, stop, Abraham. Here's the substitute. And he provides the uh, he provides the ram in the thicket. But anyway, it's a it's a nice reminder of who God is, who we are. And thank God that God is God and uh, and we are not. Isaiah 46, 10. This passage also is a bit of a taunt. And um, let me back up and get more context on this one, too. Because um, verse 5 says, to whom would you liken me? To whom would you liken me? If you're going to be, uh, if you're going to commit idolatry, if you're going to violate command number one and have some other God before God, and uh, are you going to take a fallen angel and say he's comparable to the creator God of the universe? To whom would you liken me? Satan and his, I will be like the most high God. And we come along and we uh, support that with idolatry and say, okay, yeah, he's like God. I'll worship him. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? And uh, so there's a taunt. And uh, you want to build an idol, you can bow down to it. It's not going to move and uh, can't answer. It can't deliver you. It doesn't have a plan from eternity past. Only God does. So recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. From ancient times, this precedes humanity. This goes back to the angelic realm and the declarations in the angelic realm that uh, have yet to be fulfilled, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Remember what his soul pleases that he will do. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's not just an arbitrary sovereignty with no explanation. And who are you, old pot, to argue with God? It is the good pleasure of God that he is accomplishing. And it's the good pleasure to magnify his son. So we can appreciate that also. Daniel 4.35. This is what uh, this is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. That's why he had to spend seven years in the backyard eating grass like an animal till he could wake up and realize that uh, God is sovereign. Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. The sovereignty of God and the plan of God spans angelity and humanity alike, and his will is beyond humanity. His will is bigger. His plan is bigger than redemption. This is why um, covenant theology that's so redemption-centric and dispensational theology that's glory of God-centric, it's really quite a contrast. And dispensational theology is so superior to covenant theology for a lot of reasons. But uh, understanding the centrality of God's glory, the centrality of God's plan to magnify his son, that's, uh, that's a benefit we have in our theological structure. All right. 
He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Not have you, what have you done? You know, uh, human beings are, are finite. Human beings are subject to criticism. And human beings, uh, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, will be second-guessed about why did you do this and why did you do that? And I disagree with your plan. And um, you're you're taking us back to the church building too soon or or you're taking us back too slowly or we never should have left it. Where's our faith? Why didn't we stay in the building the whole time? And uh, for every decision you make, there's going to be a thousand critics. And, uh, well, it is what it is. All right. So you just uh, stay faithful in the plan of God and, and, and try to walk humbly with your God. Be pleasing in his sight. God is the only one that uh, <laughs> no one's going to come along. Although there are plenty of critics and plenty of people will blame God. Why did you let this happen to me? And and so forth. They're going to disagree with God's plan. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact that God is the sovereign being of the universe. Serves as a good reminder in Ephesians 1.11. Why, you know, when you ask the why question, why me, Lord? Well, it's because... He works all things after the counsel of his will. How about that? That's the answer to all the why questions in the universe. Ephesians 1.11 says, We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. It's God's purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. So there you go. And it's an eternal counsel, we're told. When you turn over to Ephesians 3.11, you've got to combine 1.11 with 3.11. It's called an eternal counsel, an eternal purpose, in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So 3.11 tells us it's an eternal purpose. 1.11 tells us it's the counsel of his will. It is according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. And since it's an eternal counsel, an eternal purpose, he put this plan into motion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all in agreement with it. And uh, didn't uh, didn't consult us or get our input for uh, the plan he put into into effect. Uh, who are we to uh, to question these things? So this is uh, this is the useful study here. All right. Well, that gets us through the plans of man and the plans of God. We can move on now to verse twenty-two. And talk about being conformed to the image of God's Son. There's a powerful verse here. Proverbs 19.22. I'll move the Bible down to the lower part of the slide so I don't, I don't think there's a way to automatically do this. It's all just a manual thing. Proverbs 19.22. All right. Whole new verse, whole new segment, whole new section of poetry here. What is desirable in a man is his chesed, his kindness, his loyalty, his grace. Hard to uh, hard to put a definition on chesed, but it's chesed and truth, grace and truth. What is desirable in a man is his chesed, his kindness. And it is better to be a poor man than a liar. Proverbs 19.22 gives us ideal, the ideal man. It is desirable. 
it is desirable uh, for us to grow to as a uh, as a facet of our uh, character in in uh, Christian growth. This is the uh, objective of what we're supposed to be growing to as we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That we are being equipped to uh, to the mature man, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. So the more that we grow, the more we are becoming Christ-like. And uh, this is, in fact, what we are predestined to, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Well, what is that image? And what is the what are the character traits that describe Jesus Christ and the character traits that describe us in our ideal um, maturity, our ideal growth? And so we have what is ideal, what is desirable. And uh, different character traits. And, of course, in God's wisdom, contrast to the world's wisdom, if um, if you ask the world this question about what is desirable in a man, you're going to get uh, human viewpoint answers. And um, you ask uh, for the world's wisdom about the kind of uh, the kind of uh, person you want to be, the kind of person you're looking for in a spouse, uh, the kind of uh, young man that you hope your daughter meets one day. Or uh, the kind of young woman that you hope your son meets one day, that kind of thing. Uh, wh- what is desirable? What are the character traits that are uh, that you look for beyond anything else? And what this verse describes uh, describes it in two ways. The A part describes the chesed, and the B part describes the truth, because it is better to be a poor man than a liar. And uh, the issue isn't uh, the economic status of this person. The issue is, is he a man of truth? And uh, because if he's a liar, who cares if he's got billions of dollars in the bank? The uh, the two character traits here are grace and truth. And so what we really, it's kind of a neat thing here in Proverbs 19.22. I think when we develop it and when we see it in uh, the the context of the, the whole breadth of Scripture, um, I phrased it this way in main point 15. The ideal man, the ideal person, okay, mankind, humanity, man or woman, if you want to be inclusive, the ideal man or woman is conformed to the image of God's Son, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. And these are the uh, the vocabulary here, chesed, that's found in this verse, uh, truth, Truth technically is not even found in this verse, but uh, the Hebrew noun emeth is our noun for truth, E-M-E-T-H. And so um, these are the concepts that I'm going to spend uh, the rest of today breaking down for you. And uh, this will be the bulk of what we're going to look at next week uh, with uh, the blessings we have to grow in grace and truth. And uh, the the privilege that it is in such a way. I think... Uh, we're not going to have time to look at all those verses, so let me just jump ahead to John 1 and show you verses 14 and 17. The ideal man, of course, is Jesus, who uh, walked this earth in his sinless sinless way. John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And this is uh, the the bottom line description of our Savior. And uh, I'm sure there were other descriptions that could have been brought. I'm sure there were other characteristics. Uh, We know from Isaiah 53 that he wasn't a handsome fellow. 
He had no stately form or majesty that we should be attracted to him. Um, that uh, elements of his personal appearance were actually quite uh, marred, that he was a afflicted, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, one uh, from whom men hide their face. He, he had a tough life. And I expect uh, in uh, the rejection that he faced and in the sorrows and the grief, I think uh, that he was tested in capacities beyond what we could imagine. And uh, he also had the grace capacity to identify with his disciples and to uh, to suffer on their behalf, to, to be grieved and sorrowful over them. And I, I think after three and a half years of of uh, bearing those guys' burdens that he probably, um, I think his face probably reflected a lot of that with a lot of frowns, with a lot of wrinkles, with a lot of uh, 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 testimony to uh, to their grief that they brought him in that period of time. Plus to have all those unbelieving brothers that kept uh, giving him all their, their advice for how he could build his ministry. I expect James and Jude and those guys gave uh, gave Jesus his fair share of wrinkles and uh, gray hair and whatever else. So uh, anyway, the description of our Savior that uh, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this glory, remember, he laid aside his privileges. So these, these weren't the glories of majesty glories of divine might glories of it's not divine power but it's glory of the only begotten glory of the humble servant glory of the uh, of the uh, humility of the servant full of grace and truth verse 17 says the law was given through moses grace and truth were realized through jesus christ and this is what he's done. He's come to exegete the Father. And this is what his first advent was all about. And this is what we should be growing in, in uh, these character traits of grace and truth. So um, let's see how far we can get. It's got a few minutes left. Um, realize that this is a theme in wisdom literature. Grace and truth are a theme throughout. It's, it's curious to me when... Uh, uh, People are, are confused between Old Testament and New Testament uh, and in drawing the contrast between law and grace, they uh, I think they make a, a fatal mistake to say that in the Old Testament didn't have any grace. That's wrong. The, the Old Testament had all kinds of grace. Grace is throughout the Old Testament in addition to law that is uh, a feature of the Old Testament. And so don't uh, don't fall for that idea that there's no grace to be found in the old testament there's tons of grace to be found in the old testament and it tends to center on this term of tested and i think uh when we see the tandem of grace and truth and we see the benefit that grace and truth have that we want to be growing in uh, in that grace and truth um uh, from now till the trumpet sounds i mean for the rest of our days and beyond what a what a blessing that we have in this uh in this privilege all right so, all right, Proverbs 3, 3, do not let kindness and truth leave you, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. And uh, taught this way back in the early chapters of Proverbs, uh, this is chesed and ameth, kindness and truth, grace and truth. The thing about chesed 
is that it has such a variety of translations in the English. Uh, it's unfortunate that um, that you have it that way. It'd be easier if it was just a simple one-to-one -one translation. They can call it grace constantly or mercy constantly or kindness constantly. Uh, it really defies a single English term. And there are, uh, in fact, there are other Hebrew terms for grace. There's chen and chanan. Um, the, the girl's name Hannah. Uh, Hannah comes from really the normal Hebrew word for grace. Uh, but chesed uh, is includes that. Chesed includes Hannah, but it's so much more than Hannah. And uh, mercy, the idea of Elias mercy. Chesed includes mercy, but it's more than that. Uh, love, and you get uh, ahav, love in the Hebrew. And chesed includes love, and it's more than that. I'm going to show you, in fact, I found a, a neat um, journal article where the author was doing a survey of chesed and trying to show how chesed essentially is six or eight different Hebrew words all rolled up into one. And it describes the the blessed loving kindness of our God. It describes his uh, His grace and mercy combined. And uh, whereas in the New Testament, we end up having to use multiplied terms like charis and uh, uh, grace and, and mercy get blended together in chesed. Anyway, it's a, it's a curious study, and it's one I don't want to just rush through in, in five quick minutes. I want to be able to take an entire hour to uh, to break down for you the blessings of chesed. But starting with verse 3, though, don't let it leave you. <clears throat> Bind them around your neck. You know, grace and truth are such, or kindness and truth, chesed and, and ameth are such that you can learn it, you can embrace it, but it can also slip away. If you're not careful, um, you stop thinking in, in a grace way. You stop thinking in the truth of God's word. You can neglect grace and truth. And the next thing you know, it's gone. The next thing you know, you're uh, thinking with human viewpoint and you're, you're walking in the world and thinking the way the world thinks. So don't let it slip away. Bind them around your neck. It's like, uh, you know, when I was five years old and mom put the house key on my ring or on the uh, thing around your neck. And so it gets tucked into your shirt. And uh, when you come home from school, you can pull it out and you can unlock the door and uh, you can't lose it unless you lose your head. And, uh, you know, which I think I would. I would lose my head if it wasn't attached. And uh, mom knew that, too. <laughs> so that's why the house key gets put around your neck. That's why uh, kindness and truth should be put around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Proverbs 14, 22. Will they not go astray who devise evil? But kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. And uh, there's a contrast. Those who devise evil, those who devise good, uh, the unbeliever or the carnal believer, uh, they're off course. They're going to go astray. But kindness and truth keeps you on course constantly. The poetry of that contrast is kind of fun, too. Proverbs 16.6. Uh, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. You know, um, this is something else that people struggle with because they don't think that uh, there's there's a clear gospel message in the Old Testament. And, uh, and, and yet I find repeated gospel information in the Old Testament, like right here. How do you atone for iniquity? Are you going to do it yourself? Is it going to be your own human effort? Are you going to earn your way to glory? 
Here we notice it's loving kindness and truth. In fact, you could even look look to this and say, is this a prophecy of Jesus Christ? <laughs> is this anticipation of, of John chapter one? You know, and, and you start to think when 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 John writes John chapter one about grace and truth are realized in Jesus Christ, that should get you excited because immediately you should realize, wow, Proverbs 16, six, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. That here, this is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. So we have a tremendous, uh, I think it's a soteriological, it's an Old Testament soteriological promise that uh, we can't atone for our own iniquity. How can we save ourselves? But uh, grace and truth is God's provision. So we can rejoice in that. All right. Uh, let me get one more in Proverbs, then we'll call it a day. Proverbs 20 and 28. We'll save the Psalms for next week. Loyalty and truth preserves the king, and he upholds his throne by righteousness. Of course, this is true for any Jewish king. Uh, you know, Solomon, the author here, this would apply to him. In his father's generation, it would apply to him. Uh, Solomon clearly learned this from David. Uh, the Davidic Psalms that speak of uh, grace and truth. Uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see those next week. But um, but not only is it historically descriptive, but it's also prophetically. Uh, true as it applies to the future, as it applies to Jesus Christ on his throne in uh, in the millennial kingdom and beyond, that uh, Jesus Christ's reign is going to be a reign of uh, grace and truth, and it's going to be a throne of righteousness, and we're going to have perfect government for the first time ever in uh, what, a, what a joy that's going to be. Look forward to that. All right, well, we'll pick us up, pick up on this next week, uh, Lord willing, and rapture pending and it'll be on go to meeting again we're not rushing back to the building anytime soon uh, there's going to be some cleaning required and some camera installation required before we return back to the the building so two weeks three weeks four weeks however long it takes uh, we should have an estimate ready by the end of this week and a target plan but don't forget our plans may not be accomplished god's plan is the one that gets accomplished father we thank you for your truth we thank you for this day we thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.